Ron. Good morning. <laughs> uh, I hope you're doing well. As uh, Mark said, my name is Matt, and I have the privilege of being connected with Park and before that City Vision for three to four years. It was really an exciting season of my life, um, but uh, now I have the privilege of serving as pastor of equipping and community development uh, over at Elmwood, which is uh, another church revitalization, one of uh, Park's sister churches. And I'm, uh, I'm glad to see so many familiar faces. It was encouraging coming in and seeing so many people I know. But on the other hand, there's so many new faces out here. So I think that that's probably a good problem. It means God is drawing people in. He is, uh, he's moving in this community. So I want you to be encouraged by that. Um, quick update on Elmwood for those that are interested. Things are going really well um, overall. We're still kind of developing uh, in some areas, but we've got our volunteer ministries uh, locked down. Our, our Sunday gatherings have become really, really solid. We're seeing people start to come for the community. One of the things we're working on uh, is kind of developing more community awareness of what God is doing at Elmwood. So if you want to pray for something, just pray that the community would start to be drawn to what is going on. We're trying to serve them the best ways we can. We're starting up our small groups ministry, so um, things are really happening, and uh, it's, it's been really good. God has been working in an amazing way. Uh, there's an amazing amount of unity, similarly to what we saw happen here at Park uh, early on. So I, I just want to say that as much as I love it over there, um, there's something special about being back at Park, uh, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you to uh, so many friends, like personal friends of mine that encouraged me. Uh, thank you to the seniors, especially, who would sit in with me on adult Sunday school classes where, you know, I would talk about twice as fast as I should have. Uh, just, but thank you to all of you, like, at large for praying for us, and, and uh, I, I think that I can confidently say on, on my behalf, but on behalf of John and, and Fred, who I pastor with, that, like, we really do feel supported uh, and loved. So thank you so much. Um, let me invite you to turn, as it says on the screen, to Matthew chapter 10. Uh, we're going to start in verse 26 this morning, and we're actually going to finish out the chapter. So uh, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 26. And while you do that, uh, let's recognize together two things that should be commonplace in any church community. If you are connected to God's people in any way, uh, God willing, there's two things that you're going to hear a lot about, especially during Sunday gatherings. Uh, the first thing, or, or maybe better worded, the first person that you're going to hear uh, a lot about is Jesus, right? This is should, this kind of is the no-duh, obvious answer one, um, but it's amazing how many places that call themselves churches, you don't hear Jesus being the centerpiece uh, nowadays. But obviously knowing Andrew and Ben and Mark and Kendra and just the staff as a whole, I know that you hear uh, a lot about him. And I think that that is a good and a right thing. And that should be our expectation when we come together for gathered worship that we're going to hear a lot about Christ, about his life and his death and his resurrection. And that should be foundational to both who we view God to be and in turn who we view ourselves to be. The second thing that you're probably going to hear uh, a lot about, kind of integrally tied to Jesus, is the mission that Jesus has sent us on. If we want to use kind of Christianese jargon, we sometimes refer to this as the Great Commission. This is the end of Matthew, the end of chapter 28, where he tells his disciples to go and make more disciples of all nations. And to put that in, in common phrase, we're supposed to engage in relationships with those around us, with those that don't know Christ, and tell them about what he has done for them, and then walk with them in relationships, hoping that they will eventually bow the knee to Christ and walk with them as they bow the knee to Christ in these communities of love that we call 
the church. But I think that if we're real with ourselves, if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, sometimes I would argue that we probably feel this divide between who we know Jesus to be in our heads, in our hearts, and then actually being bold enough to go and talk to those people in our spheres of influence about him. Sometimes there's a tension there. Sometimes there's this disconnect where we freeze up. We know what we should be doing, but we don't always do it. And this could be for a variety of reasons, right? Some of these I I would deem to be uh, understandable, but sometimes we come up with some pretty bad excuses for why we shouldn't go and talk to others about Christ. So sometimes, uh, to use some examples, our hesitations of sharing the gospel with others might be because of things that are internal to us. So maybe you fear personal rejection when you talk to those around you, that you might be off-putting by talking to them about Jesus, that you might be viewed as slightly cliche in a way. Or maybe some, you, are, you have this fear that somebody is going to ask you a question about either Jesus or the scriptures, something deep. Uh, in today's day and age, usually that has to do with Noah's flood or the creation account or uh, some of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't know how to answer those questions well, and so we freeze up and we don't want to put ourselves in a position to have to talk about those things. Or maybe I know that Park is very intergenerational. Maybe you've been talking to people about Jesus for most of your life, and you're now at a place where you just feel exhausted where you're just too tired to engage in those conversations and relationships right now. On the other hand, um, there's external factors that influence us. We have the enemy, we have Satan and his demons that are working against us, trying to deter us from exalting Christ. Or maybe when you think about evangelism, this word evangelism stirs up images for you of of, of picketed fence people yelling hateful things in Christ's name and you don't want to be labeled as one of those people. Or possibly the family you come from is less than accepting of of faith in Christ. And to actually talk about Jesus could lead to personal danger for you or for your loved ones. The point is, is that we talk a lot about Jesus. And we talk a lot about his mission. But there's a place where we have to come to grips with the fact that we're called to do this mission in a broken world. And to make disciples of Jesus, to confront people who most of the time think they're pretty well off and to tell them that they are inherently rebels against a holy God, but God in his mercy has reached down through his son in order to draw them and reconcile them back to himself, except the son says that he is the only way and the truth and the life. Sometimes that's really hard on us personally, whether that be emotionally or otherwise, to actually go out and do that, to do that in practice. If you remember Mark's sermon last week, he began the section uh, that kind of transitioned in Matthew's gospel for us. When we look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, he kind of has it broken down into five sections, which reflect the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So we have already covered the first two so far in your sermon series. So in the first section, Jesus goes out and he proclaims what we call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. This is God's rule over all things. He is uh, is, uh, uh, asserting his power over a broken world. The second section, Jesus not only goes on to talk about the kingdom of heaven, which if you study it, is the main theme that Jesus views. He views himself and his main mission as bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, reuniting heaven and earth. So in that second section, he starts to show us characteristics of what that kingdom is like. He goes about doing miracles and exorcisms and healings. And if you trace it, he actually does three sets of three of these miracles or acts. And in between each set of three, he invites people to follow him. 
in this section, and to, in this section to, and to reiterate a little bit of what uh, Mark had covered last week, Jesus, starting in chapter 10, not only does these miracles on his own, but he is now handing off the keys to his disciples to go on a very specific mission, to just 12 of them, that they're going to go and do mission to the Jewish people. He says, go in and, and proclaim the news of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he commissions them to do miracles on his behalf. And as he's commissioning them, he's very real with them. And he tells them, and he has this expectation, obviously, that people are going to receive the news that he's giving, but he tells them that other people are going to have mixed reviews. And he tells them that some people are, frankly, going to be really hostile to the message that they come to bring. And surely we should be able to identify with this. We live in an incredibly polarized and frustrating and, and, and pluralistic, meaning that almost every belief is, is counted as valid. That is the culture that we live in. And it, we're going in a trend of where becoming a Christ follower, at least in the public sphere, is becoming less and less acceptable among the general population. So we should be able to identify with this. And as we look at this, morning, this, this morning's text, it appears that Jesus, in, in all of his wisdom, is telling his disciples that things may not be all sunshine and daisies for you when you go out to proclaim this message. And he anticipates their fear, and he anticipates their concerns. And so in the second half of chapter 10, what we're going to look at is Jesus speaking into the heart of any concerns that they might have. And he boils it down to two specific concerns. And I, I, I think that this, this news is incredibly relevant for us because in a similar way to how they would, would experience turmoil, that, they would, that there would be a toll taken on them personally, there's a level where doing mission on behalf of Jesus in this world takes a toll on us personally. So I think it's incredibly important that we, we look at this today. And, and as Jesus is speaking, he's, he's going to make it really clear that the value of knowing God is greater than the fears that we have while following Christ. I'll say it one more time. The value of knowing God is greater than the fears, any fears, that we might have in following Christ. Um, so let's take a look at the scripture this morning. Let's actually go and read it. Uh, again, chapter 10, verses 26 is where we're going to start, and we'll finish the chapter. We'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll continue to get into it some more. Um, so would you stand in honor of God's word? Chapter 10, verse 26 says this, so have no fear of them. That is Jesus talking to those who would uh, reject the message that, that might cause turmoil for the disciples on their mission. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you that he'll by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. You can go ahead and have a seat. Well, there aren't uh, many things in life worse than losing a friend, is there? I know for me, my, my family moved to Florida when I was around 12 or 13 years old, so that was right around seventh grade. Uh, so we moved during that summer, and as I began school that following year, obviously I started developing relationships and building friends and, uh, with people and, and, and different acquaintances, that, and these relationships would uh, last with me all the way up into some of my high school years. But there was a specific time in my life, a specific time in my high school career that was a little bit less than fortunate. You see, as I, as I got into high school, some of my friends uh, started uh, expressing what we call anti-Semitism. And for me, growing up Jewish, uh, this was pretty offensive, and, and it led to some pretty significant heartbreak. And I don't believe that they really understood, being young and naive, the full implications of their anti-Semitism. That is, harsh feelings that shows itself in words or actions towards Semitic people, meaning uh, Jewish people specifically. So I don't think they understood the implications of their anti-Semitism, but it was there nonetheless. And uh, eventually this got taken up, uh, the, the chain of discipline a bit at my school. And eventually, by the end of my sophomore year, my family and I had made the decision that I was going to switch high schools before my junior year. And so we switched, uh, and it was a good transition. I started to build relationships, but obviously those relationships were not as deep, uh, and they didn't flourish in the way that some of those previous relationships that I had lost did. And no matter what your social situation is, I, I, I'm sure that you can understand that that was a less than desirable season in my life. Uh, I don't expect many of you to have undergone the same thing, but, but most of us, in some shape or form, have experienced the loss of a friend or a family member or a coworker for maybe a number of reasons. Maybe it's because the season that you're in, you guys are just going in two different directions, and those relationships fizzle out. Or maybe it's because of tragedy, right? Somebody close to you passes away, an extremely painful situation. Or possibly it's because of relational conflict, it's because you say something or they do something or whatever it is and there is this butting of heads and the relationship falls apart as a result of that. And that's what Jesus is going to uh, speak into here. Many of you know as well as I that, that the loss of those kind of relationships can be extremely painful, that it can be so hard. And, and it's no surprise when we think about what the Bible says about relationships, right? It says that we were made for them. We were created to be in relationships, both with God and with those around us, as I had said earlier, in these communities of love and acceptance, calling each other to accountability as we follow this holy God. And because of our own sin and rejection and disobedience against this God, it's not only our relationships with God that have been screwed up, but it's our relationships with one another that have been fractured. 
So we have this relational tension where we're a people who have been redeemed and indwelt with the Holy Spirit into reconciled relationships, but we're sent out by God into a world that still experiences the turmoil of broken relationships. And as you might expect, the obvious result is going to be that there's some sort of collision. There's some sort of brokenness when that happens. So so how do we handle that? The truth is that there's never been a person who has not cared about what at least one other person thought of them. There's some people that have thought of themselves as loners and they might say they don't care about what people think of them, but I would argue that even to say that as an action is showing that they are responding to their social situations. Does that make sense? So we, so we all care about what people think of us. And now with certain technologies and social medias, there's extended pressure because we don't only care what people in our towns or in our families think of us anymore. We are so concerned about what people on the other side of our world think about our Twitter accounts, how many followers we have. Our reputations have only increased in value to us. And Jesus gets that. He understands that. Just look at uh, verses 34 through 37. He tries to give them a realistic picture of this. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of their own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. Jesus gets this. One of the stereotypes that Minnesotans have taken on over uh, uh, the period of time is that they are incredibly nice, at least on the surface, right? But we are also incredibly passive. And many of us would dive out of the way of conflict at all costs. We would rather not get into it. But if we're, if we're, if we're real, it, it's much better if there's going to be an unavoidable conflict for us to know that that conflict is coming. If we're going to have a less than desirable conversation with our boss at work, it's better that we can emotionally prepare ourselves for that than to be blindsided for it. And that is, that's a bit of what I think Jesus is doing here. He sets up the proper expectations that as his followers are going about being ambassadors of God's kingdom, he lets them know that the message that they're going to bring is going to create tension with even their closest people. But then in an almost shocking manner, in a way to kind of assuage this fear and speak into it, Jesus doesn't tell you or tell them it's all going to be okay. You don't need to worry about it. What he does is he draws the attention back to himself. And he makes this dichotomy between the relationships that you hold dear, disciples, and a relationship with him. And he sets him out himself out as the standard of relationship that they need to be attaining to and valuing above all else. So Jesus is either being incredibly deluded and self-centered and arrogant, or the question stands of whether it could be true that a relationship with him is the highest value to which we can attain. There are a lot of people in our lives that would demand our loyalty over our families and closest friends but I would argue that there is only one person who can actually ask that of us and that we should follow through and obey that, and that's Jesus. Because Jesus hadn't come to be their friends only. He hadn't come to just be their teacher only who would impart knowledge to them and they would pass it down and then he would pass away. 
He came so that on a cross, he would subject himself to relational tension and in fact broken relationship from his father so that we can be restored in a relationship with the only relationship that at the end of the day really matters, a relationship with our creator. Friends, Jesus came to show that knowing God must be more valuable to us than the relational tension that we might experience because we know him. Now, as we look back at the text, the disciples apparently had a little bit more concerns than just relational conflict that they might run into on the road. They had another concern on the docket, and that was a concern for personal safety. I'll tell you another personal story. When I was a sophomore in college, I was hanging out at a bonfire with some of my friends, and eventually I made my way home. If you know where Dinkytown is by the University of Minnesota, I kind of lived in the back streets. Uh, back there, and I was uh, walking back to my house, uh, and I had my headphones on. You think you're invincible, right, at that, at that point, and you got your headphones on. I was young and naive, and I got to the street. I got all the way to the street where I was living, and I got shoved, and before I knew it, I got mugged. And uh, one of the guys pulled out what appeared uh, to be a gun, and so I wasn't gonna screw around with that because I didn't have my nunchucks on me. I'm just kidding, I don't own nunchucks, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but I wasn't gonna screw with that, right? And so they took my valuables, and, and that was that. And uh, thankfully I got my wallet back because I was going home to Florida, so I needed my ID. Someone found it on the other side of campus a week or within the next week or two, and that was great. But obviously I lost my valuables, and needless to say, that that was a, a scenario I didn't love. That wasn't amazing for me. And, and as we look at, at the state of our culture, I think that we've fallen into this trap where we believe that our safety is a right. That if God calls us to question our safety, that he's violating our rights. When in fact, safety is a, a unique privilege that we have in this country and some have in their countries. But for many people, they don't wake up assuming safety for themselves. This goes especially for many Christians in, in countries that are uh, uh, either atheistic or they're working against, uh, against religion as a whole. And I want to nuance what I'm about to say by saying that on some level, I think that it is good and it is right for God's people to seek to be in some regards safe and wise in their decision making. We want to protect and care for our families because we're called to steward them. But what Jesus is speaking into here uh, regards the fact that as tension arises for his disciples... While they're on mission, they will subject themselves to the possibility of real personal harm. And so Jesus speaks into that, specifically in verses 28 through 30 and 38 through 39. Take a look at that. So 28 through 30. And don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? This is his illustration supporting that. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And then verses 38 through 39, he says, And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Now, if you know anything about sparrows or the coin that he's talking about in the first century world, you know that Jesus is talking about almost worthless things. And he does this that he can demonstrate for them that if their heavenly father, if God cares intimately about almost those worthless things, then how much more is he going to care about his disciples? How much more is he going to care for us? And he continues to speak into the fact that the very worst thing, or maybe better, better worded, the very best thing that can happen is that somebody decides to do us harm and we die and we are sent into an early eternity with this God who loves us so dearly. That is the worst thing that can happen. Now, in response to that, I think it's pretty easy, especially if you're a, a, a younger Christian. Sometimes we like to get a little overzealous, and I, I think it's pretty easy to swing the pendulum then the other way and say, okay, if the worst thing that can happen is somebody kills me and I spend eternity with God, then I'm going to find the most dangerous and awful place that I can find, and I am going to go there and proclaim the gospel to the glory of God, and if I lose my life, then I lose my life. And I firmly believe that God calls some people to that. And if that's you, then I support you 100%. And I affirm your call. And I think that you are a unique and a beautiful gift to God's church and, amaz and an amazing tool that he uses in order to honor and glorify himself. But I don't think that all of us are called to those settings. And I don't believe that God wants us to be flippant and subject ourselves to personal harm unnecessarily. When it comes down to it, it's a matter of stewardship and obedience of what God is speaking into, and what Christ is speaking into. God has given all of us in this room the, the privilege of life. Our lives are a gift. And just like we would steward our things, we are called to steward our lives well, to exalt his name, to make Christ known in what he has done. But the obedience aspect comes in, in that while we're called to steward our lives, we are never, ever called to idolize our lives over obedience to Christ while we're on mission. We are never called to idolize our lives. As a friend of mine put it, the, the, the fear of danger, the reality that danger exists in a broken world, it should not hinder our mission. It should not stop us from doing mission in any way. It should only cause us to think wisely about the best way that we engage in making disciples. There's a very weird tension that Jesus speaks into in verse 39 where he, where he talks about this idea that it, it, the, the only time where we will truly find life is when we set him above our own lives. That when we count knowing him as more valuable than anything we could experience, danger or otherwise, that is the only way that we are going to find a life that never ends. Do you feel that paradox, that tension? When we give our lives up, that is the only way that we find a life that can never be taken from us, a life secure in Christ. And that's why I think Jesus is pressing into that our relationship with Christ is our only lasting security. It is the only thing that we can truly depend on at the end of the day. Let me just say again that, that doing mission on behalf of a, of a holy God in a, a broken world is a scary and it's an exhausting thing. It causes tension for us, but we're called to it and we're never allowed and we are never called to let that fear and our exhaustion 
be an excuse for disobedience. Wherever you're at this morning, I want to I encourage you uh, with three different things, and then I'm going to give us a few questions uh, to reflect on uh, as we seek to make disciples of Jesus in our own settings and spheres of influence. So the first thing is this. Jesus is well aware of every place where you struggle to follow him. In the, same where, in the same way where he anticipated his disciples' concerns here and spoke into them in an amazing way, he understands our fears and our frustrations and our impatience as we try and minister to those around us and, and direct them to the one who truly loves their soul. The next thing is there is nothing that Jesus has called you to that he was unwilling to do first. When we look at our text this morning, Jesus is specifically addressing relational fears and fears of safety. And, and I think that if we think about our main uh, uh, reservations when we get in those moments of sharing the gospel and then we shy away from it, I, I think that we can boil down most of our fears into being in one of those two categories. And, and, uh, I, but I just want to take a second to, to remind you that as we think about this, in those moments of fear, in those moments where you're like, I should be talking to this person about Jesus and I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know how they're going to respond. I want to remind you that it was this Jesus who just following, sending his disciples out on mission, when they come back, they would follow him up to Jerusalem, and he would allow himself to be humiliated and rejected in his own form of relational conflict. And he would allow himself to be lifted up and killed on a cross, abandoning all safety so that we could find eternal security. In God. It should be no, uh, it shouldn't just be a possibility for us when we think about following this crucified Messiah of whether or not we're going to engage some sort of tension as we share the good news about him with those around us. It should be an expectation, and so we need to be prepared for that expectation and think about how we can wisely and lovingly and graciously speak into those concerns and the broken hearts of those in our communities. The final thing I want to encourage you with is that we know the end of the story. The scriptures, the historical record are very clear of what the end of the story is. It isn't a question of if people are going to come to follow Christ. We know that not everybody will, but we know that some will. And so the question is, who will follow him as we share the good news? When will they come to know him? Some of us, that happens immediately. Some For some people, we've been praying for people for years and years and years and then how can we walk with them as they become brothers and sisters in the Lord? We have an amazing privilege to partner with God as he draws people to himself. That should be something that excites us, that shouldn't intimidate us, that shouldn't scare us, that should excite us. And now in applying God's word, um, let me ask you three questions, three questions that you can reflect on um, and you can try and apply this in your own context. And please take the time to think about these. Just don't leave here and leave the questions behind. Actually think about these. And as we take communion, I'd encourage you to reflect on them before you come up uh, to share uh, in the Lord's Supper. The first question is this. Who are five people in your sphere of influence who don't know Jesus? Maybe you can't think of five. Maybe you can think of three. Or maybe you can only think of one. But the point, is, the point is not to shame us about how many people in our circles don't know Jesus. The point is, is that we should be encouraged by having those relationships because those are opportunities for God through his spirit to use us. So think about who those five people 
are. Next thing is this. What usually stops you from talking to these people about Jesus? What's the biggest thing that holds you back? Because we all have hesitations. And consider what the root is behind those hesitations. And, and, and I would encourage you to address those in a Christian community of, of mentors or friends or small groups or whatever it is. What are those hesitations? And finally, and this is, this is the hardest question, are those things, your fears or your tiredness or your lack of time, are they more worthy of your obedience than Jesus is? Why do we so often view them to be more worthy than our Savior? Obviously, I believe for many of us, we'd say that they aren't more worthy, that Jesus is the only one that is truly worthy. But I believe we all, myself included, need to take a step further and ask, are our lives congruent with what we say we believe? We talk about going out on mission. Do we let things get in the way of that mission? Are they more worthy than Christ? I would argue they're not. Friends, Christ finishes in verses 40 through 42 by talking about uh, the reward for receiving a, a prophet and a, a righteous man and a disciple. And no matter where you're at this morning, if you wouldn't call yourself a Jesus follower, um, that's okay. If you've been following Jesus for, for 50 years, or maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you're somewhere in between. The Bible is really clear. It's very clear that Jesus is the true and better prophet he came with a message from God saying that despite our rejection, God came and wants to reconcile all things to himself, and he is the means by which that is going to happen. He is the only means by which that's going to happen. He not only came as a true and better prophet, but as the righteous man. The scriptures say all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, that no matter how hard we try to live a good life, it is still a broken life. We are called to reflect the image of God, and it is still a broken image. And Christ, living a perfect life, desires to credit you through faith with his perfect life. And similarly to the disciples who would come to humble themselves before Christ, Christ, although being God, humbled himself by taking on flesh, by allowing himself to be hung on a cross to the point of death so that through that death and resurrection, that we could be assured that through trusting him, we could be forgiven for all of our brokenness, for every sin, for every time that we feel like God is calling us to do mission and yet we turn away from that. He's called us and he has redeemed us and he's given us this mission to follow through on. And it's clear this morning that if we're not willing to abandon everything, if we, if we count anything as more valuable than him, then we are not worthy of him. So let me encourage you. Let, let us be a people who when we examine all of our loves, our families, our friends, the things that we have, even our spouse, I want us to be a people who can confidently say that every love we have pales in comparison to him, that it falls short, that it is almost incomparable to the love that we have for him. We're going to transition now to a time where we're going to take the Lord's uh, Supper, and this is an opportunity for us to recognize that we only love him because he loved us and gave himself for us first. So if you're a Jesus follower, then, then this is for you, but let me encourage you before you come up to reflect on those questions, 
Who are people in your life that don't know Jesus? What are your hesitations in talking to them about Jesus? And are those hesitations more worthy than Christ? If you've been counting them as more worthy than Christ, then, then take a moment to repent and ask God for forgiveness. And you can be assured that if we confess our sins, that he's willing to forgive us for every place where we have struggled. I want to affirm that as we take this, this is our reminder that we are redeemed only because Christ gave his body for us and shed his blood for us. So let's respond out of that identity and let's respond in a fervent fervent want to do mission in our communities. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to uh, just look at your word. We pray that that word would take root in our hearts, that it would lead us, Lord, that we would be transformed by it and that we would be convicted this morning by your spirit for the ways that you've called us to do mission and yet we've struggled to do that, Lord. We confess our weakness. We confess that we, in, in so many circumstances, have people around us that need Jesus and we don't follow through. We don't follow through. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to count knowing you and the relationship that we have with you as more worthy than than the loss of anything else. Lord, we thank you that you've gone before us. We thank you that you subjected yourself to the brokenness of our world, to humiliation, to death, so that we wouldn't have to know what it means to be separated from God. Lord, we pray that we'd respond out of that. We pray that we would reflect on that this morning and that we would be a transformed people. In Jesus' name, amen.